Welcome to the Mind Manufacturing Podcast, brought to you by PTI Engineered Plastics. In each episode, we talk to a plastic injection molding expert about topics ranging from product development to tooling, process validation, and automation. We'll discuss industry trends and provide valuable insight into the plastics manufacturing industry of the future. You can learn more about PTI Engineered Plastics by visiting teampti.com. Please subscribe to this free show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media for all the latest from PTI. Hello, everyone. My name is Kelly Riley, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. In this week's episode, we will be discussing design for manufacturing with John Cottrell, who is the lead program manager for PTI's commercial engineering group. When designing a plastic part, there's so many items that are important, things to consider from uniform wall thickness to gate location to applying the proper draft to your part model. So this podcast is intended to shed light on the key areas of design. Welcome to the podcast, John, and um, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's your background in the industry. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, as mentioned, I'm the lead program manager here at PTI. Um, I've actually been in the plastics industry for the better part of 25 years. Um, starting right out of high school. Um, throughout my career, I've launched products in many different industries, from automotive to consumer products, furniture, robotics, defense, and more recently here at PTI with a high focus on medical devices and monitoring devices. Fantastic. Any, any particular industry that you really like to work within, or do you find, find little things here and there that are appealing? Uh, each industry has their own pros and cons. Pros and cons, Okay. So, all right, well, we'll dive right in. Um, so why should a designer consider the manufacturing process when they're in the design phase of the product? Why well, is really, it important? Really understanding the, the processes that you're going to use to manufacture will allow a designer to apply the correct principles for how, the, how to design a part. Knowing how it's going to be made lends itself to how you should design it. Um, all too often, we receive designs that look great on paper, however... The design will not work for injection molding. They'd actually be better suited for like a machining application. Um, as I said, I couldn't tell you how many times I received a part only to realize that the designer had no idea and took no consideration of that it was going to be an injection molded part. And by not understanding the requirements of an injection molding design, it adds a lot of cost and time to deliver the part. Yeah, which is going to set your project back right from the get-go. Yep, and not only my project, but their project. Their project and ultimately the timeline they're trying to deliver on. Okay, so what are the main design aspects that a designer should be considering when they're developing that part to be injection molded? Uh, as, as we know, we could probably go on and on about this, but we'll kind of focus on some of the main items to consider. And those include materials to use, which... Some people call it resin, but uh, I'll refer to it as a material. Um, wall thickness, draft angles, parting lines, where we want to gate the part, how we want to eject it, um, the bossing and ribbing on the back side, and if it's not a standalone component, how's that part going to be joined together? Okay. Okay, so when you're looking at your resin or your material, what should you consider when you're, when you're considering your, your materials that you're going to use? All right, the first question to ask is, what environment the part or is the part going to live in? 
Is it going to encounter chemicals or extreme temperatures? Will it be a cosmetic part or something that people touch? Um, do we believe we need a highly engineered material for performance? And I always recommend people lean on the resin manufacturers for material guidance. Um, with molders such as PTI, we have our preferred suppliers that can help recommend a grade. However, fully understanding who's going to use, what's it being used for, where is it being used, and how are they going to use it goes a long way. It's kind of like developing a story the way we learned to do in grade school. The whole who, what, where, when, why, and how. Why and how. Okay. Right, right. Because if it's going to be under the hood of a car and no one's going to see it, well, you've got maybe, and, and I imagine cost is even a consideration too with materials. Like, why would you spend money on a highly engineered resin that no one's going to see? Um, so there's probably a lot of different things that go into that. Okay. Definitely. Okay. But most designers really don't care about cost. Oh, well, that might be another episode. <laughs> okay, so um, what about things like uh, the wall thickness? I think you talked a little bit about that. But So how would the resin play into that? And is there too thin of a wall or too thick of a wall? Like where, where would you go with that? Well, wall thickness can be a tricky response. However, a good rule of thumb is to keep a wall stock between 2 and 3 millimeters. Um, and also keeping it consistent wall stock will help the post injection shrink to be more consistent and predictable um and one thing i do want to uh, point out is that this is coming from a perspective of a non-thin wall molding um thin wall molding is a whole other animal that okay. pti doesn't get into um so that's why we do recommend the two to three millimeter wall stock um but thin wall molding, those are the containers and bottles that you see in packaging. Okay, yeah, more of like packaging materials. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, I want to bring up an example from early in my career in regards to wall, wall thickness. And it's something I'll never forget and I always go back to. Um, one of the first companies I worked at, we were making these very cool handles for a large furniture manufacturer. They look like wood and they're about three quarters of an inch thick. And the wood or the material was probably even had a wood filler in it because I remember it always smelled like a bonfire when we ran the part. <laughs> but the intent was to replace the wood handles that they historically had used on their uh, furniture. However, that large, large mass caused a whole lot of processing issues, and the parts actually had to be dropped into a chilled bath of water to process through. Every part they, had to go into every a part. bath. So I added a ton of time, a ton of cost. That must have been a cost driver. <laughs> it definitely was. Um, and if the parts didn't go in that cold, chilled bath, they fell on the floor for whatever reason, they would actually shrivel up and look like a coiled snake on the floor. Oh, my God. So anytime somebody comes to me with a thick wall stock, I always go back to looking at that part and be like, all right, this is why we want a, a consistent, relatively thin wall stock. Yeah, and consistent. Okay. Very good. Yeah, that um, that had to been an interesting process. So. It definitely was. So that's we always want to keep that wall stock in a, a good manageable level. Okay. And then one last point I wanted to make on wall stock, um, material selection does play into that, as you alluded to earlier, because um, if a part gets too thin, the material may have a harder time filling, which would cause another level of uh, processing issues. Processing problems. Okay. Yep. Okay. So talking about processing and then like material flow and everything how um 
I'm sure the, the again the material matters there. Then what about when you're you have to decide where to put a gate in on the part design? Um, gating a part, if you don't know what it is, is where the plastic enters the mold and flows into the part geometry. This dictates where the flow fronts and knit lines are going to be on the finished part. Also, gating can affect the visual and tactile surfaces. For instance, gating on the A side of, of a part could leave a, a vestige that a rubber glove would tear on, and we don't really want that to happen. So a designer would need to understand what options are available for gating. So the A, the A, side, is the, the A side is the visible part? The, that, that is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right, if you had something that a doctor was going to handle or um, you know, a medical part and it, it wasn't gated properly, you'd be causing a lot of problems in the medical setting in an operating room or something like that. Yep. You wouldn't want to tear a glove. Okay. Yep. And that's one thing, um, like during the tool design and development process, we ask these questions. A lot of times we have to make part changes to allow for a specific gating scenario, which if this was vetted out during the design phase, it would save time. And we wouldn't have to be doing any uh, post-design freeze changes to allow for the proper gating based on the use of the to part. go back and revisit that. So there's different types of gates that are involved, I'm sure, depending on the, the type of material that you're using so what, and different situations. So what kind? tell us what kind of gates there are and where they're used at. Well, the most common type of gate is an edge gate. And the edge gate is something that a lot of us are familiar with. Um, if you remember back to being a kid and building a model, the model parts came on uh, like a a runner system or a frame that you had to break the, mm -hmm. the gates off on. And yeah, some, some of us now are doing that for our own kids. <laughs> um, but those tend to leave a large amount of uh, vestige if, if not trimmed or broken off properly. That's the analogy about the, the gloves and the, um, the doctor's gloves. Um, but there's also uh, what we call a subgate. Um, these are sheared off during the part ejection. Um, a little more fancy, a little less vestige. Um, then there's cashew gates, which are typically wrapped around to the back side of the part or the B side, as we'll call it. Um, if the A side's our show part, the B side's the back side. Back side, okay. And then if we want to get even more fancy, there's several types of direct gates, or uh, some people can call them valve gates. But at this point, a designer really should start consulting with a tooling expert during that part development to really understand the limitations of each. Um, Quick internet search can provide pictures and a general overview of the, what these look like. Um, we also need to be wary of material selection because that does play in the gate selection or gate style because um, not all materials work with all gate styles and yeah. vice versa. Right. So you could you could find some references out there, but really you need to lean on your your potential tool builder to, to help you vet those things out, make sure that you're going down the right path. Yeah, and just and like I said, just a, a little bit of homework uh, can go a long way so we can get those things designed in or, or at least on. identified locations and type before we even get to that uh, tool design process. Okay, okay. So then um, the part ejection. So what types of variables do we have to consider about we've got our part molded, now we got to get it out of the mold? Well... As you, as you put it, we got to get out of the mold. Got to so get it out of the mold. It's, it's a very critical part of uh, the production process. Um, making sure the ejection system and points of push are not going to uh, interfere with any of the functional areas should be noted. Um, we love to see areas where on drawings that say 
uh, ejection okay here, not okay here, specifically if you have areas that are highly functional on the B side of the part. Um, and also uh, draft is very important for the part to come out of the mold. So what is draft? Right. All right. We, you'll hear us talk about draft or draft angles throughout either this discussion or you know, in general design work. So draft is um, if a wall is perpendicular to the surface of the tool, it can't be straight. A straight wall is going to cause a lot of friction and potentially the part will stick into the tool or we will get what's called pin push because we have to pull that straight wall or push that straight wall out of the tool. And yeah, we always joke, you know, sometimes if a part's not designed right, I'll give you a great-looking plastic part, but it comes with a big piece of steel. <laughs> but, the, but all joking aside, the draft angle allows the feature to release from the tool as it starts to move out of the steel. Okay, okay. Um, when the, tool or the part is cooling, like, does that have, that plays into draft too? Like, so you have to consider how a part is going to shrink? Uh, shrink does play in draft a little bit because uh, um, features that are inside of the tool potentially may need to have a little more draft and stuff on the Another, outside. Okay. Um, and something I'm asked all the time is, how much draft do you need? We, our initial uh, response is going to be one and a half degrees, which doesn't seem like a lot, but it adds up really fast. Okay. Um, we do have parts that have half degree or quarter degree, gra- degree drafts, something that we really don't like to do. Um, it can be done, but it's just not ideal. Okay. And it potentially could cause some problems. Um, through the years, I've seen, like I said, I've seen parts with little draft and lots of ribs sticking because of it. Uh, it's a pretty cool sight when you see a part sticking a tool, but it causes a lot of problems that... The tool shop, uh, the process engineers, uh, the product engineer, we all have to take care of. Right, um, that you would be vetting all this out in your prototype phase and when you're, you're developing all this. So you kind or, of you want to get ahead of it. You don't even want that to happen in the prototype phase. Correct, or, in or, just, or straight into the design apart. phase. Yep. Okay. Um, and one other thing that should be noted is if a part has any texture or surface finish on it, that there are specifications for how much draft those surfaces need. Um, there's all sorts of SPI finishes, and then in different industries, they have different uh, textures, such in the automotive industry. There's a lot of animal prints or okay. highly engineered finishes, and they provide specifications on how much draft angle is required for those. Types. Okay, okay. So um, that's kind of like the, the B side or the background. What about um, improving the aesthetics of a part, the A side of the part? Well, most designers, they're trying to That's achieve That's where they're it. at. Right? Yep. They're trying to make a good-looking part anyways. Um, and typically they achieve it, but executing from a full design standpoint are sometimes missed. Um, and when I say full design standpoint, they make it look good on the tube and what your eyes see, but how does the whole system work together? Um, many of the items we already discussed play into that, uh, such as the draft, um, on the visual surface, because if you don't have enough draft, you're going to get what we call scuffing, where that texture, the peaks and valleys of the texture are going to scrape, kind of like sandpaper, uh, if you okay. scrape it across the part one okay. time. Um, but another area that needs attention are the features on the back side or the B side. You know, we we kind of alluded to that. Um, 
those do play a major role in what the A side looks like. Okay. Yeah. A supporting role. You got it. The backside, they're supporting the A. All right. These features can include the structural, the connection points of the project or product, such as ribs and bosses. Um, as with some of the items mentioned before, there's documented design principles to follow, such as a rib should only be 50% of the thickness of the wall it's connected to. Um, I guess to explain what that means, you know, this morning as I was getting prepared for our discussion, I was looking at the speakers on my desk. And just like anybody else in the plastic world, when we look at plastic parts, we, crit- we critique them. Um, my first impression was, hey, they look pretty good. But then I noticed there's some read-through all the way around the part. And that was the ribs on the inside that gave it structure. They were either designed improperly or processed improperly, but I could see them. And oh, okay. it was read-through. Now you can see on the A side where those ribs are. Faintly, like just a little... You got it. Yeah. But enough that, hey, it's there, right. and it's not supposed to be. And possibly most people wouldn't see it, but people that are working in the plastic world, we definitely pick up on that stuff. Right, right. And then, I mean, if it's a high-quality, if it's, say, in a consumer good world, and it's a very expensive speaker, you you don't want to see anything like that. That is correct. Or even a medical device where all, all those things are critical. Yep. And then another thing um, to consider with the aesthetics of the part is actually having enough support in the backside. Um, we don't want the part not to have structural integrity, or if it needs, if it has a mating part, that those mating features are you know, provide a nice clean assembly. Something I learned a long time ago while working with uh, Japanese OEMs on some automotive projects was about uh, a tight fit or finish with mating parts. Um, once we were got our parts dimensionally correct, the focus then turned to the gap and flushness of the system. And making sure the parts not only function properly but had great meaning seam was imperative. And really to this day, understanding that gap and flush requirement and how it uh, translates into the quality level of part, it sticks with me. And I even keep I even kept the tools utilized for checking okay. those. Uh, okay. Um, but again, that goes back to the what's on the back side of the part and having enough structural integrity that those parts fit together properly. Fit the way they're supposed yep. to. Okay. And so then that leads me into like the next question about tolerances. So if you're, I imagine that that's where tolerances become critical too, if you're mating a part. But so what does a designer need to consider with part tolerance and again, their material selection? Yep. So uh, earlier I mentioned, I get asked a lot about draft. The number one question I do get asked is, what tolerance can you hold? Mm. Um, fortunately, there's a pretty easy answer on that, as there's a lot of documentation out there, white papers, books, uh, industry guides that have been published over the years. They contain tables and recommendations to um, in relate, relating materials and their expected tolerances based on part size. Um, my goal when asked this question is to help the designer to or guide the designer to look at those guides and to even provide samples of those guides to them so they have something to look at and base their tolerances on. Right, right. Use the reference materials that are out there, work with your with your with your team. Okay. Um, but one thing I do want to know is we always break the rules. <laughs> you know, those are guides. 
Um, we break them both. It's a suggestion. In, yep, it's we break them both in good way and bad way. Because um, the thing is, we never see a part that is a perfect part relative to how those design guys were developed. They were designed off of basic shapes and part geometry. We don't make basic shapes and part geometry. We make complex shapes. Especially, you have a little wiggle room. decision making okay okay um back to again like the the point you made about joining parts together so how there's probably a lot of different ways that plastic parts are joined together um that's got to be critical in the the design phase too it is um it's not my specialty but i do know enough to be dangerous (laughs) um the first comment i would like to make is we recommend you stay away from adhesives such as glue or epoxies they can be messy and consistent, and if not bedded out correctly, have a impact on the plastics. Oh, but it could degrade the the, yeah. the material. Okay. Yep. However, there's I've seen over the last few years of better and better application processes. Um, so it's slowly changing my perspective on it, but it's something that PTI we're really not comfortable with. Or we believe that there's better ways better to ways join to do plastics. That. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's a. You know, the number one way I would look at is using snap fits or press fit joints. There's a, I would like to use the litany of them, but there's a, a lot of different designs out there that are proven for snap fit joints. Um, we have a docket of our own designs that we've used over the years that we really like. We know that work well. Um, we've also seen a lot of uh, customers using thread forming screws. Um, and those are used a lot for non-serviceable applications, um, i.e. projects that we have to assemble one time, and okay. that's it. Um, if something needs to be serviceable and they want to use screws, like cap-end screws, they'll, a lot of times we'll see threaded inserts or heat-staked inserts that a screw can go in and out of okay. multiple times with okay. no degradation to the joint. To the, okay. Yep. Um, additionally, we do a lot of joining with ultrasonics. It's a process that can give you a very nice seal. Um, it goes well with products that have geometries that don't allow for snap fits or for screws or bolts or nuts. Um, and it's a very repetitive process, very easy to uh, develop and to have a good seal. Okay, repeatable, yep. so, okay, with quality, all that kind of thing. Okay, um, so there's probably ever-changing rules, ever-changing advancements. So what kind of maybe technical advances in injection molding does a designer have to be aware of, or would that be, you know, your your tool builder's role, too, in helping you sort through those and stay on top of it? Well, as we said earlier, you know, we're kind of looking at it from a uh, starting point of, like, a centralized general design principles. Um, with any industry, there's continual advances uh, plastics no different um, as we look at new technologies you know where I guess as part of this discussion my recommendation with a designer would be let's start with the, the basic principles and then as that design develops if we as a team want to look at some newer technologies or newer ways to manufacture then we're looking at system design Okay. And that's equipment, that's injection molding, that's auxiliary capital, you know, something bigger than just the product design. Okay. Yep. So I guess 
in summary, my overall suggestion with um, designing for manufacturing is to start with the general principles that we've th- discussed today. Um, we have some other guidelines that we can provide uh, customers, engineers, um, designers as to to get a good understanding of what these principles really look like, uh, more graphical, more technically detailed than what our conversation is today. Right, but in, in like engage early, get your team together, probably use the references that are out there, um, but early engagement with your with your team is probably the best advice that you could offer. Yep, and as I mentioned, you know we have uh, some documentation and design guidelines that we can supply to customers, and those can be found on our website. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us today, John. Um, I, I hope you know that everyone was able to take away a little something. You gave some good advice, some some food for thought, and um, yeah, we'll we'll hope that we can continue these kinds of discussions and help people out early on in their their design process. So thanks for joining us today. That sounds good. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Mind to Manufacturing podcast brought to you by PTI Engineered Plastics. You can subscribe to the Mind to Manufacturing podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please don't forget to leave us a review. Want to learn more about PTI Engineered Plastics custom injection molding services? please visit teampti.com and follow us on social media. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll meet you right back here for our next episode.